Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give life or death that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servant said to him, If the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? Wash and be clean. This is the word of the Lord. Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel about 875 years before the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. When Elijah was dying, he placed his mantle around the shoulders of Elisha and then was taken up to heaven, the Bible says. Elisha became the great prophet in the northern kingdom called Israel, southern one called Judah, you recall. He became a prophet for about 50 years, from roughly 850 to 800 before the Common Era. The biggest power immediately to Israel's north was called Aram in that century. A century later, it would be even bigger and would call itself Assyria. It is where today's nation, Syria, stands. Damascus was its capital city all through that time. Naaman commander of the armies of all of Aram. Now a century later when they would swoop down, devastate the ten northern tribes, rape, plunder, and intermarry until the ten northern tribes disappeared, ceased to be a separate people. The language of those peoples would still be the common language of people in the area around the Sea of Galilee 800 years later. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Let's take a look. Number one, Naaman was commander of the armies. Some people get treated a lot better than others. 
I remember years ago when George Scott won an Academy Award for portraying General George Patton. Gail and I went to see that movie. We thought it was terrific. When we got home, I called my mother and dad. My father fought in Patton's Third Army in World War II, 86 Black Hawk Infantry Division. I said, Dad, I think you and Mom ought to go see the movie. I didn't think they'd seen one since Gone with the Wind. So they went to see it a few nights later, and my dad called me. I asked, what did you think? He said, it was a good movie. All I could think about, he said, was how differently generals are treated from private first class. I mean, even when Patton was grieving because his command had been taken away from him after he slapped an American soldier down in Sicily, he was still living in a Roman villa with marble floors. He was still attended by his aides who helped him dress every morning, put his revolver around his waist, at night gave him Cuban cigars and French champagne and put a silk robe on him before he went to bed. When our unit was joined to Patton's Third Army, Dad said, Patton could make all those speeches to the other Allied commanders. My army can go farther in 72 miles without hot food than any other army that's ever fought on the face of the earth. We were being asked, could we get to Bastogne that Christmas in time to save the 101st Airborne that had been surrounded by the Germans? Remember that for that next 72 hours, Patton was riding in a jeep. I was jogging through knee-deep snow, trying to keep up. Generals are treated differently. Well, so was Naaman. Look at what he took when he went down to get healed. He took silver and gold and ten sets of beautiful clothes. Now that might not mean much to you unless you do the multiplication, but this week I decided to multiply all that silver and gold by today's market price. You can Google that kind of information. He took almost 400 thousand dollars worth of silver and almost four million dollars worth of gold generals get treated differently number two though a mighty warrior he had leprosy now Hebrew scholars are quick to point out that the word leprosy in England English covers a lot of different things that the Hebrew word means. Rabbi Gunter Plout says, if this man had had what we know as leprosy today, Hansen's disease, he could not have functioned as commander of the armies. He had to have had some other kind of skin condition. The best scholarship says something like psoriasis, perhaps. It was a bother to him, perhaps an embarrassment to him. He wanted it to be healed. I think this says to all of us that even though Naaman had much, he didn't have everything. Nobody has it all. This week I was reading that we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of Ernest Hemingway's having committed suicide. Yesterday, 50 years. I just finished my sophomore year in college. 
In high school, I didn't read Ernest Hemingway. In college, I had a professor who insisted upon it. And I became fascinated with reading Ernest Hemingway. Critics don't give as much credence to Death in the Afternoon. It was my favorite. They don't give as much credence to The Old Man in the Sea, his bestseller ever. They give more credence to For Whom the Bell Tolls, A Farewell to Arms, and any number of others. He was awarded the Nobel Prize. But at 61 years of age, he was no longer living in Paris. He was no longer living in Key West, Florida. He was in Ketchum, Idaho. He was a diabetic. He was an alcoholic. He'd had four wives. He had three sons who had generally messed up their lives. One of them had had four wives like his dad, more children than anyone could accurately count, and died in jail. He also suffered, Ernest Hemingway, from severe bouts of depression, so severe that he was given electroshock treatments at Mayo Clinic. On July the 2nd, 1961, he stuck one of his hunting rifles in the roof of his mouth and pulled the trigger. Nobody has it all. Nobody has it all. Number three, a little girl turns this story around. She's a slave. The people of Aram, just to the north of Israel, had regular raids into Israel. When they needed more slaves, conduct a raid, See how many you could steal. Strongest young men, prettiest young women. This girl from Israel is now a slave. Naaman brought her home to his wife. She hears this discussion about Naaman's illness and says if he could only be with the prophet in Israel, he could be cured. Now you think about it. This is just a few years after Elijah has fought with the prophets of Baal, when the former king of the northern tribes had married a pagan wife named Jezebel, when she is brought into the royal palace of the northern kingdom, all these gods and goddesses of fertility. Archaeological digs through that territory have shown that all the way up to the destruction of the temple in 587, every household still had representations of the gods and goddesses of fertility. But this little girl's parents had done something well. She didn't say if he could meet the god of fertility or his goddess consort. She said if he could meet the prophet of Israel's god. If he could only meet the prophet of Israel's god. This child had been taught that there is only one real God and that one created the heavens and the earth. And if that one created everything that is, then somehow that God must be father of us all, making us brothers and sisters. Even this hated general who had stripped her from her family and her homeland. God must care even for him if he will only go to the prophet in Samaria. Number four. Naaman packs up chariots, horses, soldiers, $400,000 worth of silver, $4 million worth of gold, and goes to get healed. 
He goes first to the king. The king knows nothing about this. Nothing. He thinks he's being tricked because he can't heal anybody. Only God can de decide life and death, he says. He's right about that. He tears his clothes. I'm undone. This is just a trick for them to conquer us, to declare war on us. Elisha hears about it. Send him to me. So Naaman comes, all these chariots and horses and soldiers, and Elisha doesn't even get out of his chair. He sends a messenger. Go out and tell him to wash seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman says, who does he think he is? And does he know who I am? And besides that, we've got far bigger and better rivers at Damascus than they have anywhere in Israel. There's a play on a word here. The Hebrew word is shub, and it means turn or return. And he turned and went away in a rage. But his servant said, Sir, if he had given you something really difficult to do, you probably would have done it. Why don't you go wash and be clean? And his skin turned to that of a small boy. And he turned and went back to the prophet and said, Yahweh Elohim is the God of all that is. Huh? To turn. Revivals have come to America in several different ages. Perhaps the first big time in the early 19, uh, 1700s. John Wesley, born early in 1703 at Epworth, England. Four months later in Connecticut, in the colonies, a baby named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had four sisters older than he was. He came along, and then his mother and father had daughter number five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten daughters, one son. Jonathan Edwards' father was a minister. His grandfather was a minister. His maternal grandfather was a minister. When he was 12, he entered Yale. When he was 16, he was graduated summa cum laude, valedictorian of his class. He entered the School of Theology, graduate school, and he did wonderfully well. He was ordained when he was 23. He became associate pastor to one of his grandfathers who served one of the largest and most prestigious churches in all of Massachusetts. Two years later, his grandfather died. Jonathan became pastor at 25 years of age. He would pastor that great church for the next 30 years. But he would say his life was forever changed when he invited to preach at his church George Whitfield. Remember that name? An Englishman who came to the colonies to preach. Remember that Benjamin Franklin had a reputation for being a real skinflint who squeezed every dollar till it screamed. In fact, there was a famous savings and loan chain called the Benjamin Franklin Savings and Loan. But he wrote in his diary that one night he went down the street to hear George Whitfield preach, and after hearing Mr. Whitfield for 15 minutes, he said, had they passed those plates again, I would have emptied my pockets of all their copper. After hearing him 30 minutes, all of my silver 
after hearing him 45 minutes, all of my gold. Jonathan Edwards invited that George Whitfield to preach in his church. And later his congregation would remember that as Whitfield began to preach, their beloved pastor began to weep silently. George Whitfield told the people they had turned away from God, but there was a way home. There was a way home that God had chosen to reveal himself to us Gentiles in Mary's child Jesus that God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life come home come home he pled Jonathan Edwards wrote from that night on Every time I walked into a pulpit, I promised two things. I would do the best I could to help every person there come to Christ. But even if no one came, I would offer myself again. 